Hello and welcome everyone to the Monday Morning General Podcast, where we give you the play-by-play and analysis on battles from antiquity to the 20th century. I'm Brendan, that's Bjorn, and returning again this week is Sam. Hey. Because, let's be real, Sam, you chose a series, so you kind of have to be here to talk about it. With us. I sure did. <laughs> so, Sam, first off, welcome back. We heard some real positive feedback in the last series about our guest, so I was thinking that... We may have to either make you, if not an official member, we could at least maybe make you a de facto non-voting member of the podcast. Um, but so more importantly than anything, Sam, why did you choose the Battle of Kanai? Oh, hey, um, we're doing the Battle of Kanai today. Yeah, That's we're doing right. the Battle of Kanai. Now, wait, side note wait. here, side note for the listeners, I've heard the battle pronounced two different ways. Many historians say that you're totally all right with pronouncing it either the Battle of Kanai, like we're going to use it today, or you could also call it the Battle of Canny, which... Sounds cool too. So you're totally cool either different way. Battle of Kanai. Oh boy. Kanai. <laughs> Kanai. We're doing Kanai. It's impossible Pause. to say. You know, with us being in Minnesota, we're going to say Kanai. You know, hey, <laughs> we're going to screw it up a bunch. So just get right. used to it. I've heard it well, twice. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for having me back. It's yeah, it's man. great to be here. I had a lot of fun last time. Thank you to the listeners that enjoyed my takes on things. Um, so really appreciate that. But anyway, so I chose the Battle of Kanai uh, because every general since, so this took place in 216 BC, and every general since has wanted their version of this battle. Um, Norman Schwarzkopf talked about it in the uh, in the Gulf War. He said that that was his inspiration for his uh, his swift attack into Kuwait. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower talked about it and uh, about uh, some of his engagements in World War II. Helmut von Moltke and Alfred von Schlieffen in World War One and, and even pre-World War One talked about this. So this has sort of been the model of the perfect pincer maneuver and just the model of how to uh, play, take the enemy and, and, and put them exactly where you want them for a decisive victory. So it's cited a ton throughout history. So I thought we and our listeners ought to know more. Wow, Sam. I really actually like that. So remember, if if listeners remember the last uh, when he when he said that this is the battle that he wanted to do next, I kind of said, I'm going to I'm going to fight you on that, because remember, the Battle of Kanai resulted in nothing in an overarching strategic (laughs) victory. The way you put it here is absolutely significant to history. So in one little paragraph, Sam, you have completely changed my View that's so easy to change Wow, wow, that's that's well, that's flip flopper. It's such a flip flopper. No, 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 that's great. And I, while I agree that looking back in history, there was no significant advantage that was or that was anything decisive to the Second Punic War that resulted from a battle. Of I, I, I actually think that Hannibal had some good reasons for not. I mean. This is going to sound bad for not seizing the initiative. I mean, he probably should have in hindsight, but he had his reasons, and we'll talk through that probably in the next episode. And but. like maybe not strategically to the Second Punic War, but maybe to history. And yeah. you know, the, this devastating loss really affected Rome and kind of changed the trajectory of the Republic into what you know would become the Roman Empire. So right. there's some like political things that happened because of this. And right. Just and to, we'll talk more about Hannibal's strategy. Like he wasn't, you know. he wasn't trying to destroy Rome. He was trying to win allies from the other Italian city states around Rome. Um, oh, so it was all political. It was all political. So the battle. Of jump, Kanai, just, well, Sam, I was just just jump <laughs> on your point here, like talking about Schwarzkopf and Eisenhower. Like a lot of people will say Hannibal is the premier general of antiquity, and some would even say like of human history like yeah, of recorded history hannibal is like the best general that's ever general yeah even hannibal battles, would say that <laughs> some of the battles that we'll talk about today 
um, also show Hannibal's creativity and yeah. his, um, you know, th- just things that were completely out of the norm for how ancient mm-hmm. armies conducted battle. Um, and he he kind of was breaking the mold. And so um, I think he deserves a lot of respect for that. So, um, but yeah, so the Battle of Cannae uh, was a key engagement in the Second Punic War between the Roman Republic and Carthage, which was a city-state in North Africa. It, it was, was an on, empire at this point. It like controlled Western yeah. Mediterranean. It was an empire. It was it was an empire, but it was also a, like Rome became an empire, but it was also a city-state. Carthage started out as a uh, North African city-state. Uh, so fought on 2 August uh, in 216 BC near the ancient village of Cannae in Apula in Southeast Italy. The Carthaginians and their allies, led by Hannibal, surrounded and practically annihilated a much larger Roman and Italian army under the consuls Lucius Aemilius Paulius and Gaius Trentius Varro. And it is regarded as one of the greatest tactical feats in military history and one of the worst defeats in Roman history. And we will... Definitely be butchering some names, but we will do our best to get them right. <laughs> I well, think that's going to go for every episode. <laughs> All right, Bjorn, let's jump into this and talk about the key leaders of the Battle of Cannae. So let's start on the Punic side. We'll start with the Carthaginian Hannibal Barca. All right. Yeah. So Hannibal Barca, born 247. Uh, he's going to be a Carthaginian general and statesman commanding the forces of Carthage in their battle against the Roman Republic during the Second Punic War. His father, his name's Himilcar Barca, is actually a leading Carthaginian general during the First Punic War, so there's a family history here. Uh, his younger brothers, uh, Mago and Hasdrubal, both are going to be other uh, generals and leaders during the Second Punic War with Hannibal. So this is an entire family of professional soldiers, which is an interesting uh, thing for, for in- antiquity and wars. Usually you had a political individual who was also kind of doubling as a military leader. That was how the Romans did it. So their political councils would be in charge of Mm -hmm. legions of soldiers, whether they knew anything about the military or not. But the Carthaginian culture was we have professional soldiers and we have other people who happen to be politicians and statesmen. So this Barca family, completely professional military. These guys know what they're doing. Not only that, They suffer from a term, you know, most of Carthage at this time after losing the first Punic War, they're going to suffer from something called revanchism, which is kind of a a play on a French word that means revenge. Uh, So essentially, it's a culture of wanting revenge for past territorial losses. The Carthaginians can't get their loss to the Romans in the first Punic War out of their mind. Uh, And so it has a lot to do with this idea of we have to get this territory back, very akin to what the French uh, lived under after the Franco-Prussian War, trying to get Alsace and Lorraine back. It's an entire generation built on this hatred and this longing and desire to reconquer lost territory. The Carthaginians don't like to lose. Uh, There are a lot of stories, especially after the First Punic War, of military leaders that had failed and were uh, crucified uh, because they performed so poorly on the battlefield. Uh, so the Carthaginians don't like to lose. And Bjorn, you're totally right. Uh, there is this revenge thing that's that's happening throughout the story. Um, so Hamilcar you know, has a son, Hannibal, and they're living in, in Carthage, which is in northern Tunisia, right, North Africa. Um, and they leave for Spain. So Hamilcar wants to go and increase the size of the Carthaginian Empire. So they are going to leave from Carthage and go and colonize 
Spain or, you know, the Iberian Peninsula. Before leaving for Spain, Hamilcar asks Hannibal, who is nine years old at this time, would you like to join me in Spain? And Hannibal begs his father to be included. So they go to this temple. Um, the Carthaginians are pretty religious. They they follow this this old Levantine religion that you kind of see in the Old Testament, you know, like Baal and, you know, some of these really old gods that come from the, the Levantine Palestinian area. They bring them with them as they, they they're a, Carthage is a city state or colony of Tyre, um, you know, part of the Phoenician kind of empire, quote unquote. They settle in North Africa to expand the, to the Tyrian Empire. Uh, Tyre falls, uh, but Carthage reemerges. But so there's just like this religious undertone happening here. So Hamilcar brings his son to the temple and he places Hannibal's hand on a sacrificial carcass and makes Hannibal swear an oath of eternal enmity towards Rome. And then they both take off for Spain together. And Hannibal spends his entire childhood learning military craft and learning about ancient Greece and learning Greek. Um, so he like he he like learns about like you know he reads uh, the Odyssey and he he learns about men like Achilles, you know, fighting in Troy and like the very heroic and single combat. And you know he just grows up in this like in the military camp. So he learns how to use a spear and how to use a sword, and he learns military strategy from his father as they colonize Spain for Carthage. Were, were Roman Carthage uh, enemies at this point? Or no, they were, they were, it was like um, very much a trading relationship. Uh, you know, Carthage, like, Car- so the way I read it was Carthage, very much a mercantile empire. They care about making right. money. They don't really care about the military so much. Like, uh, Bjorn will say it later, I think that, you know, they hire out a lot of mercenaries and things to run. Like, so they, they have a nice Navy, uh, but mostly the Navy is to help, you know, just secure um, from pirates like the trade. And so they, they're so trading they, with Rome pretty frequently. So they were actually pretty close uh, before the first Punic War. But, you know, two large empires growing up in the Western Mediterranean, they are going to come to blows. That's just, just yeah. like, right. they're so kind of like that, destined is, to fight. Is that why Hannibal's dad made him swear an oath of, oath of hatred towards Rome, even though they hadn't been in conflict up until that point? It was they had just, been, uh, yeah. So this was after the first Punic War. Oh, this was after yeah, the so, first yeah, Punic War. So okay. Hamilcar had already lost to the Romans and already right. had this, yeah, he wanted to destroy. Rome. And so he instilled that into his son. All right. So Hannibal is directly responsible for sparking the Second Punic War when he's going to attack Saguntum, which is uh, it's in Hispania at the time. It was a Roman ally today. It's modern Segunto in Spain. So he's going to be the one who starts this. But uh, we all kind of know the the way this turns out, right? Canai, we've told, is a huge, outstanding victory for the Carthaginians. But in the end, the Carthaginians are going to lose this war, right? Yeah. But what what I wanted to talk about is what you Sam starts with saying how Hannibal is seen as one of the greatest generals in history. We talked about Schwarzkopf. We're talking about Helmut von Moltke and and Schlieffen. But this is a conversation that was written down by Livy in his History of Rome from its foundation. He wrote this down. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Scipio Africanus is going to be the guy who's going to defeat Hannibal. And apparently in the story, these two guys actually sat down and had a conversation because Hannibal wasn't killed after the battle. You know, they didn't crucify him like the Carthaginians tried to do to some of their generals. Hannibal actually survives and he moves to it. He actually moves out east to some eastern uh, countries. But he actually had a conversation with Scipio Africanus, the guy who defeats him and sends him out, uh, casts him into exile, basically. And the, the conversation goes like this. It says, 
Africanus asked who, in Hannibal's opinion, was the greatest general of all time. So Scipio, the guy who beats Hannibal, is asking him who he thinks is the greatest general. So Hannibal says, Alexander, king of the Macedonians, because with a small force, he he routed armies of countless numbers, and because he traversed the remotest lands, merely to visit such lands transcended human expectation. So then Scipio asks who he would place in second place. Who's the second best general of all history? And Hannibal says, oh, it's Pyrrhus. So that's Pyrrhus of Epirus. Uh, he was the first to teach the art of laying out a camp. Beside that, no one has ever known nicer judgment in choosing his ground or in disposing his forces. He also had the art of winning men to his side so that the Italian peoples preferred the overlordship of a foreign king to that of the Roman people, who for so long had been the chief power in that country. So now Africanus is like, okay, well, where are we going to get here? Uh, so then when Africanus followed up by asking who he ranked third, Hannibal unhesitatingly claimed himself. So Hannibal says, I am the third, I I'm the third best general in all history. So Scipio bursts out laughing, right? Because Scipio beat Hannibal and Scipio is not on the list. And so, so uh, Scipio laughs out and he says, what would you have done if you had defeated me instead? And Hannibal quickly says, in that case, I should certainly have put myself before Alexander and before Pyrrhus. So uh, he says, in fact, before all other generals. So in Hannibal's opinion, had Scipio not defeated him, Hannibal would have placed himself on the greatest of all generals. Now, this is, you know, some people would say that's kind of a sideways comment. Maybe he's a little bit hubris. He's got some pride in himself, obviously. Uh, But it's also a real compliment to Scipio Africanus himself, because Scipio knows that Hannibal's got this pretty big ego problem, right? He ran roughshod over the Romans Mm. for 10, 15 years. And so Scipio is looking at this saying, if I had not defeated this guy, he thinks he would have been the greatest ever but instead he's placing himself third. So, and I mean, uh, remember where we're at in time here, we're at, you know, 216 or ish BC. Like there hasn't, I mean, maybe there were some generals before that, you know, they, they might have known in their histories that we have been lost to us today. But honestly, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a sound list in my opinion. I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah. I wouldn't disagree. Yeah. So I like that story, but now Brendan, why don't you get into the Romans? All right. So, um, we're not actually going to talk about these guys much today. They'll be more involved uh, next episode when we actually get into talking about the battle because there's a lot of Roman leaders, and they switch over leaders pretty frequently during the Republican era, right? Every single year, two new consuls, you know, the, lead, the two senior leaders of the Roman uh, Republic at the time, they get changed out every single year. Uh, so the two men we're going to talk about today, we probably actually won't talk about in the rest of the episode after this. But the first one, Lucius Emilius Paulus. Uh, he was the son of Marcus Aemilius Paulus, uh, the council of 255 BC. I think you'll see this too, right? Like um, these leaders, like they just create these lines of of family that that lead Rome for you know decades. Uh, you know, a father will give it to a son, and a son will give it to his son. And but they what's just interesting though is each other. we're not going to see that with the other Roman consul. And we'll get to that in a second. But Varro oh, was kind like of a self made okay. man. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So Paulus shared his first consulship with Marcus Livius Salinator. Uh, during this year, he defeated Demetrius of Pharos in the Second Illyrian War and forced him to flee to the court of Philip V of Macedon. On his return to Rome, he was awarded a triumph, and he was subsequently charged along with his colleague with unfairly dividing the spoils, although he was acquitted. With that being said, like this guy's a military man. Yeah. So okay. so one, one thing I think everyone needs to understand about Roman society is 
basically everybody's a military man uh, at this point in the Republic. Uh, you know, you are kind of expected, like everyone is brought into the army. It's everyone's conscripted in. You're trained from a young age to fight. So all of these, all the senators, all of the councils, like they have time in the military. You know, they're a centurion. They're in the cavalry. They learn the military. They learn how to fight. They learn about strategy. Um, and like being in the military and winning is so important to them. Like that's like how they think that they're going to have their names remembered forever, right? Is winning a triumph. And that's what they all care about is they want to win that triumph and, and be renowned and, forever. And Bjorn, maybe you can confirm this. I do know that at some point in the Roman history, your eligibility to serve in the Roman military was predicated on you owning Roman land so that you had skin in the game to fight for mm. Rome. Because if you lost, then your land was at stake. I know they lifted that at some point, and I'm not sure if it was before or after this time. Yep, you're absolutely right, Sam. Uh, they basically looked at it and said, if you're a landowner, you're expected to serve. You're expected to provide yourself with the necessary equipment to serve. Uh, and and essentially, that's going to that's gonna be really difficult for some, some dudes to perform any form of military mm-hmm. service because of the cost, because they don't have land. So they will go through a huge reform, like kind of reformation of the Roman legion. That'll happen. Um, the Marian reformations, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So- so, yeah, so here's Paulus. He has military experience. Um, we'll talk about what happens to him during the Second Punic War later, next episode. Uh, all right, let's talk about Gaius Terentius Varro. Uh, he was the member of a plebeian family, and he was the first man of note in his family. Like Sam said, he's a self-made man. Uh, his father was reportedly a butcher, and on his father's death, he used the inheritance to embark on a public career, making his name by prosecuting those of higher status and progressing through the various magistracies, holding the quaestorship and edileships. Edile. <laughs> Edileships. Uh, claims suggest that he served in the First Illyrian War, so he did have some military experience. Uh, his first time in office, for which details survive, was the praetorship of 218 B.C., right before the Second Punic War. So, as Bjorn mentioned at the top of uh, the episode here, so obviously this whole... Th- episode is centered around uh Kanai. this is the road to war but varro is going to be the one that takes a lot of the blame for this mm. um Probably and, he's a plebeian. well yeah exactly because he's well but uh the the dude that's going to end up writing the histories was pay, bought and paid for by the grandson of paulus so i there's a, a theory amongst historians that this uh historian that was paid by paulus's grandson was besmirching Varro's name, saying that oh he he his family came from nothing. His father was a butcher. He was a man of lowly status. So there is some dispute amongst uh, historians regarding Varro's background, but this is the most widely accepted version. Hmm. Interesting. One other thing to note, maybe here, like so, you know, there's the councils that kind of lead Rome, and then there's like the Senate that is kind of full of the nobility of the Roman Republic, and then there's the like there's a bunch of other like houses, but then there's the plebeians that are kind of like think like the House of uh, Representatives in the. United States, right? Like uh, the body of the people, right? So like no noble blood or anything like that. So, so that's where Varro came from. Um, we'll have more details on what happens to both of those councils uh, next episode. Gentlemen, I think we should jump into talking about some tactics and how each of these armies organize themselves and how they fought. So first let's go into the Romans. So I want to talk about the Roman gear quick, because I think we just, we like talking about equipment. So the Roman legionary like the you know the foot soldiers that we think of as a legionary they would go to battle with the records were a little fuzzy but like either one or two pilium or like shorter javelins uh so the romans had actually taken 
the Pilium from an early rival of theirs, the Samnites. Uh, so the Romans were pretty, uh, they kind of did this a lot where they would like, ooh, we fought this people and we like that thing. So we're just going to take that and incorporate that into how we fight in our equipment. Um, so the Pilium was a four foot wooden shaft with a long slender iron shank tipped with a, a barbed pyramid shaped point. And then what they would try to do is they would like, as they were marching up to the enemy, they would throw the spear from about 15 feet and they would aim for the enemy's shield uh, where that thing, I guess, could penetrate uh, a layer, uh, like a pine shield up to an inch. And then you have this like four foot long stick hanging off the end of your shield. and It's like super hard to move. So well, they would like, specifically aim for the shield to make it so that the opponent couldn't use their shield. Right. And the, you know, you'd think, well, why don't you just pull the, pull the spear out of the shield? It's it was actually yeah. designed for the, uh, the shank would actually bend and yeah. as a result of its bending, you actually couldn't get that shield out. So I don't know anyone who's really strong enough to hold a shield that has a crazy spear penetrating through it as it's, you know. With a legionary 15 feet from you. Yeah, laying out. <laughs> so it's definitely going to become an encumbrance yeah. to your to your ability to protect yourself with a shield. So they throw that shield, and then up close, they would wield the Gladius Hispaninesis. A two-foot-long double-edged sword with a long triangular point that was designed to puncture. Uh, so not like to slash. It was more of a puncturing thing. Uh, and they took that from fighting uh, folks in Hispania. So there's two uh, not original pieces of equipment there. Uh, the Romans also had what was called a scutum, a four-foot-long, two-foot-wide, triple-layered plywood shield with a horizontal hand grip. So the the hand grip didn't go vertically, so like it was easy to hold. It was, vert- or it was horizontal, so you'd have to hold it like you know, horizontally, I guess, like a horizontal grip, so hold it horizontally. And then they, what they would do then is instead of like using it defensively, it was an offensive weapon so that they would punch with the scutum. So they punch with the scutum to get some space and then they would shift forward with their right hand and, and stab and puncture with the gladius. So it's kind of like a, like a one, two mm-hmm. kind of punch thing. So think like opposite of like how a fencer would have their, their sword forward pointed to the enemy. They would stand back with the with the sword in the arm that's away from the enemy with the shield in front of them. So punch and then stab is typically how they would fight. And then uh, the way that I saw it described was like, it was kind of like a dance, right? So they would like, tr- they like punch and then they'd strike and then they'd like move around, punch and strike. Um, so it was a Roman combat was very much a singular thing, right? Everyone fought by themselves. It was not like the phalanx, like we talked about, uh, at the battle of marathon, the Romans had started to transition away from the phalanx at this point. We'll talk about the tactics soon, but it was very much like I have my space. I'm going to fight my enemy in front of me. I don't have friends next to me and I'm just going to, you know, puncture, uh, the, the enemy here. Uh, each legionary would also be equipped with a good helmet, They'd have greaves, and then they would have a chest protector with like a metal piece that would cover their heart. Um, and then some wealthy individuals might have mail, uh, but for the most part, they just had this like uh, this chest protector. Um, soldiers that didn't have mail, their entire kit was fifty pounds. If you had mail, it was eighty. So pretty Oof. heavy. That's a lot of weight that you're carrying around. That is a lot of weight. Um, so okay. So that's the gear for the legionary. There was some like cavalry and there was some like the Veilites are, are a light infantry kind of force, like a screening force. Uh, but for the most part, the core, like when you think of a Roman army, a legionary army, this is the legionnaire and this is what they fought with, right? Gladius, they had a short sword or a, a short javelin and a, and a long shield. Okay. So the Roman tactics. So like I said, the core of the Roman legion was an individual heavy foot soldier. So, Rome used to fight in the style of a Greek phalanx, um, but they started tradition transition to this more legionary individual style of combat around 100 to 200 years before Kanai. 
uh, is when they started to switch over to this. Uh, Romans loved reading about the Greeks, and they pulled a lot of this from like the um, the Odyssey, right? Like you're like you like Achilles is fighting by himself, uh, you know, against uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, Achilles and Hector. Um, Achilles and Hector, yeah. So like that's what they liked. That was the idea. Like uh, the Romans were super aggressive, super military, super, uh, you know, aggressive and on the offense at all times. And they wanted to have this, like their, their idea of like a council, like fighting in single hand combat and like taking the head from their enemy. Like that is like the triumph. This is like what the Roman generals wanted. This is what the legionaries wanted. Uh, so they transitioned to this more open formation. Each soldier had something like, like a six foot by six foot box that they would fight in. And then like, you know, six feet or 12 feet away would be an or like three feet away would be six feet away would be another legionary and so on and so forth. Um, so the basic mass fighting force was the legion. The legion was split into 10 cohorts. Uh, a cohort was about the size of a modern day infantry battalion. Uh, Sam, what is that? Like 600, 700 folks. Yep. Yep. Um, so you'd have like, like, so think like 60 people in each cohort. And then the cohort would be split into three, no, you'd have 600 people in a cohort, and then the cohorts would be split into three maniples, which would be about 200 people. And then the maniples would split into two centuries, uh, and that would have 80 infantry and a centurion uh, leading them, like a lieutenant, basically, would be leading them. So that so that word really doesn't transcribe very well. In America, we think a century is 100. Right. Well, this is a, yeah, yeah. It's 80, 80 infantry soldiers. Yeah. Okay, so the maniple had 160 folks in it. Uh, and then, yeah, well, so, okay, so inside the cohort, there's three maniples, and then the three maniples each had a name. So there's they're a maniple. All, so they're, they're all based off of experience and age. So exactly. these, yep. when these legions are brought up together, they call the legions up, which means that the citizens of Rome have to, basically, yeah. they get drafted in. And some soldiers yep. are drafted in for weeks. Others have been drafted in for years. And Multiple so times, yeah. Multiple differing campaigns. levels of age, different levels of experience. And, uh, and so that's going to determine yep. whether you're a hostati, a principe, or a yeah. triarii. Yeah. So the front closest to the enemy, the first to gain contact was the hostati. Uh, that's the first maniple. And a maniple, like I said, is like 160 infantry. Uh, in the middle were the princeps. And then in the rear were the triarii. Uh, the triarii were the most experienced soldiers. They've been in the most campaigns. And they actually would still form up in a phalanx. They had a long spear. And they're kind of like the rear protection for... Uh, that cohort and for the legion. Yeah, these dudes uh, are the final line of defense. They are, yep. right. yep. And they're actually and, probably there to make sure that a route doesn't happen and that the Principari exactly. and the Hestati yep. don't turn around and run. Yep. Okay, so there'd be a lot of space between each of these maniples. Um, and then, so think of like, so if the maniples were lined up in a line, right? So you had the Hestati, the Princeps, and the Triari all in a line. There'd be a, like, there'd be like a, a, a maniple space between each of them. So there'd be like, they'd be like five maniples deep. The princeps, the middle formation, would actually shift all the way to the left. So the very right of the princep um, would be lined up with the left of the hastati in the front and the triari in the back. And then they would checkerboard their way across the battlefield. And um, that's like how they would fight. Like they'd have this like weird checkerboard. And then once the fighting actually, that, that's how they march into, into battle. And then as the battle would begin, the lines would kind of fill in uh, to create this like whole, whole front. Uh, so that there's some kind of confusion there. Some historians think that they fought in the checkerboard style. Some historians think that that would actually fill in like during the fight. Cause like, if you think about like, if you have a checkerboard thing, like you're kind of putting out like a lot of like really easy to fight edges, uh, which the Romans probably wouldn't have done. So they probably filled in those spaces. 
Uh, but that's how they would fight. Uh, they were super aggressive. They were always on the offense and they, the Romans were very honorable and they preferred direct and open attacks. You know, they didn't like the Fox. They didn't like the trickery. Uh, and they, this was kind of like Hannibal would get under their skin uh, from this. So, right. so and, yeah, that, that's like the Roman army. Uh, that's how they would fight. And Hannibal was very, very familiar with how Rome would fight. Yeah. And I think uh, for the listeners out there, the w- one of the biggest things to remember is that six-foot box that each soldier wanted to fight in and the formation uh, that they would that they would set themselves up in because for the Battle of Cannae, they had to the, – the Roman army had to compromise on both of those things because of terrain and yep. because of how the Carthaginian yep. army arrayed themselves. So it's going to be super important later. One other thing. The Romans did have cavalry, but – the cavalrymen preferred to fight on foot. So they'd like ride their horses super fast uh-huh. to the front, then they get off and fight on foot. <laughs> so great so, idea. All right. We'll, we'll talk about it in the Carthaginian, but that's in stark contrast to yep. Carthage's uh, cavalry, who not only did they have much more of, but they were, they were much more experienced and they were yep. very comfortable fighting on horseback. Yep. Well, and here's the thing though, the Carthaginians, their forces are just going to be a hodgepodge of everything that they can mm-hmm. find. So, uh, remember, Carthage develops far east. Uh, the Phoenicians basically are the fathers of Carthage yep. and the Carthaginian Empire. Uh, their main focus was always the navy, always the navy. The first Punic War, that was the majority of the battles that took place were naval engagements, big battles, lots of uh, of ships. And, and so the main focus, always the navy. But They're going to transform their military uh, from a body of citizen soldiers. So originally it was just a bunch of their own citizens into a multinational force. It's composed of a combination of allies, citizens, and foreign mercenary units. So remember, uh, Brendan, you said it yourself. They're mercantile. They are big into trade. They've got lots of money. They have a lot of money to buy mercenaries. and They don't have a lot of people. So the citizens of Carthage tended to be officers. They were the generals. They were the officers in the military and everyone else just kind of found their way into either an elite Carthaginian unit, like the the sacred band that we'll talk about, or uh, they were mercenaries. They're people from other portions of the empire because the Carthaginian empire was essentially all of North Africa and into Spain along with Sicily. So they've got a lot of soldiers and territory to draw from. The the Romans and the Carthaginians saw this differently. Like when the Romans conquered a people, right? You know, Rome started in the city of Rome and then they expanded in, like they had basically expanded to most of the Italian peninsula by this point. And they would turn the conquered people into citizens, right? They wanted to bring people into the empire, make them be a part of the military uh, and to, to have some of this loyalty built into them. The Carthaginians are not like that, right? The, there was like a small portion of the empire that was Carthaginian citizens. Everybody else was separate and mm-hmm. they would be brought in and be paid for to fight, but they would never have Carthaginian citizenship. Right. And they would also have their own individual uh, political organizations yeah. as well. So you're talking about princes and and kings of different units and countries that are allied or uh, you know secondary places to Carthage is essentially how they would break it down. Uh, and so the Carthaginian military combined arms force have, they have uh, light and heavy infantry, siege engines, skirmishers, light and heavy cavalry, uh, war elephants, which is something new and crazy and chariots. Supreme command of the military initially was held by civilian suffets, which was a political organization until the third century BC. And then after that, like we said, the professional military generals are going to be appointed directly by the Carthaginian Senate. Uh, they're going to 
basically identify themselves as a military force based off of the Greeks because they fought a lot against the Greeks in Sicily. They're going to have a lot of influence on the development of the Carthaginians' weapons and tactics. Basically, the Carthaginians are going to adopt a Greek-style hoplite soldier mm-hmm. uh, fighting in a phalanx formation. So uh, through though native uh, Carthaginian hoplite infantry is fielded, they're largely, as we said, allies and mercenary infantry at the time of the First Punic War going into the Second the infantry is made up of Libyans. The Libyans are going to have one or two short spears that could be thrown. A linothrax armor, which is uh, actually kind of like it's kind of like scales, is kind of mm-hmm. what it is. And then uh, bronze helmets, Iberian style swords, and an aspis shield that's later replaced by a flat oval shield gripped in the center. It was called a scutum in the Western Hemisphere There's or the Western. A lot of similarities on the equipment between the two armies, and I think like as Hannibal would enter into Italy. Uh, he would start to like, once they started beating some of these Roman armies, would just like, I guess we have gladiuses now. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, and, and the, I mean, it makes sense because they're not too geographically far apart. You know, like yeah. they are, totally. you know, if you're crossing the Mediterranean, they're maybe like, what is it, 120 miles? It's not, it's not far. far. Yeah. So uh, Iberian warriors serving with Carthage are split into Sucutri heavy infantry and Ketrai. Light infantry, they're named after the shield. So a catri is a round buckler, uh, wield large javelins and fulcata swords. Gaelic and Ligurian footmen are going to be armed with similar tall shields, chainmail, bronze helmets. They're going to carry heavier shields, longer, straighter swords. Uh, essentially, this is a hodgepodge. This yeah. is a hodgepodge of anyone from all over the empires being assembled to uh, to go into battle with whatever their native yeah. cultural weapons and armor were. Yeah. Also like, like Numidian cavalry uh, before Hannibal leaves Spain, like he picks up a bunch of Spaniards and then he picks up a bunch of Gallic like Frenchmen. Uh, he picks up a lot of like Northern Italian Gauls, uh, a bunch of Celts. Like, so he just picks up like as the army marches, he just picks up everyone. It's like, you're part of the Carthaginian Punic army now. Oh yeah. He's like, Hey, you guys want to come with us? Come on. It'd be fine. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go. And they were happy because A, they were getting paid and B, they all hated Rome too. Yeah. So yeah. it worked out. So then, lastly, with the Carthaginians, I mentioned the sacred band. This is, uh, this is their elite force numbered about 2,500 soldiers, uh, usually did not fight outside of Africa, mm. uh, unit of heavy spearmen. Um, basically they're going to be in the center of any formation immediately behind the row of elephants protected by auxiliary wings of mercenaries and cavalry. So remember these old ancient armies, uh, when you've got your phalanx, you're going to set your line as long as you possibly can. And then you're going to have your skirmishers on the uh, uh, in the front and your cavalry on the outside wings in order to prevent any flanking. We should just talk about these elephants for a second. Hannibal will leave Spain with 37 pachyderms. Uh, panzer pachyderms is how the book uh, I read called them, the <laughs> panzer pachyderms. These things were freaking useless. They were not helpful at all. They take up, they, you know, they're slow. They eat a lot of food. They, none of them would actually fight a Kanai. Uh, they would not survive the trip. Uh, but still, he took elephants over the Alps. He did take elephants Useless over not, the Alps. That is a baller move. Oh, they, I think it's so, awesome. The Carthaginians liked elephants, right? They're in Africa. There's these jungle elephants that aren't there anymore, um, but they would like bring them into the army. Uh, horses did not like elephants. They were actually like frightened of them. So like uh, you could break a cavalry charge with elephants. Um, a lot like a lot of like, Western Europeans never seen an elephant. What the hell is this thing? That's all gray and big ears out a trunk and tusks. What is this? Um, like think of like 
uh, in Return of the King when those elephants come out. Like that is scary. Right? Yeah, yeah, olifants. Exactly. Get, olifants, get your yeah. lord right. It's they're, they're scary looking. If you've never seen an elephant before, yeah. uh, those ones are really huge too. In they're the big. Well, not only that, but oh, yeah. like, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> no, they weren't used at Kanai. I'm not sure if they were used in another battle. But if you they are were used once, they were used once successfully to get to Italy. Okay, but if you are a soldier on the other side of the battle from an elephant and you've never seen an elephant before and it's charging at you, like you got to think that like we, we're done. You <laughs> yeah, know, the end is near. <laughs> All right, Bjorn, do you have any other points here yeah, on, on one Carthage? Last, one last thing. So <laughs> it's difficult to say precisely what a typical makeup of a Carthaginian army is going to be. Okay. But in the Punic Wars, we have reports that include an army is going to have Greeks, Iberians, Balearic, Balearics, Gauls. That's a small group of islands that are just east of Spain. Yeah. Gauls, Ligures, Italians, Samnites, Lucians, Sicilians, Numidians, Libyans, Libophoenicians. Uh, Africans and Punics. Okay. So like they got a lot of dudes different everywhere. Just, just think of all the languages that were spoken, but they all speak the same language, money, money. Nice. Okay. <laughs> all right, Sam, you have a couple notes in here. I know, so I just really, to, to, summarize, like, yeah. the, to summarize the key points that are going to matter in the battle of Kanai here. So Rome generally had better equipment and they, you know, they're going to have superior numbers at the battle of Kanai. So they're going to lean on those laurels here. Um, but really what Carthage had while they had uh, fewer numbers at the Battle of Kanai, they are going to have a superior cavalry and actually more numerous cavalry than uh, the Romans had. So to me, like it's, it's great talking about all this stuff, but what, what's going to matter is the Carthaginian cavalry and the Roman mm-hmm. equipment. Yep. Nice. All right. Let's uh, jump into the road to war now and get to the battle. Um, so I think the first thing is the second Punic War really started because of the results of the first. Uh, Hamilcar, Hannibal's father, was the general leading the Punic army of mercenaries. And he actually abandoned his army on Sicily after losing the first Punic War. Um, the his, the mercenaries were like, hey, we need to get paid. And then uh, Hamilcar had told his second in command, like, all right, get these guys over to Carthage and we'll get them paid. And then he just left. Hamilcar just went back to Carthage without like, going with his troops or anything. So uh, pretty embarrassing. Uh, so Carthage at the time, because of that, Carthage had to deal with like a three-year mutiny. Uh, all these like mercenaries were mutinying against the Carthaginian uh, city-state. Uh, so during that time, an uprising started on the island of Sardinia, uh, which Carthage held at the time. The Sardinians asked Rome for help, and Rome couldn't turn down that offer to rule the island that they've been seeking for a long time. Uh, this pissed off Carthage. And that would be the revenge for the Second Punic War. Oh, you are going to meddle in Sardinia? So that's kind of like the the bed ground here for the Second Punic War. So my big my big takeaway here is always pay your mercenaries. Pay your mercenaries. And a lot of Romans never figured that out, actually. You think they would have. There's hmm. a lot of stories of the, in the Empire of not paying your army. It never hmm. works out. All right. So in the winter of 218, Hannibal was now the the leader of like the Barkid clan inside of Spain. And he was like his own autonomous region. Uh, he like this, all of Spain basically belonged to Hannibal and the Barkid family. Uh, so Hannibal had set up uh, his palace in New Carthage, which is modern day Cartagena in Spain. Uh, and he was visited by Roman emissaries there. They warned him not to interfere in a dispute between their ally Saguntum and a local Carthage allied Spanish tribe and reminded Hannibal not to cross the Ebro line, uh, which was like an established like DMZ that was uh, a treaty signed at 226. 
So the problem is Saguntum was well south of the Ebro line, and Hannibal did not like that the Romans were interfering with Carthaginian land, uh, and they like reminded him, like, don't mess with us. So that is what really happened. Like, So Hannibal uh, had supposedly received permission from the leadership in Carthage to deal with this how he saw fit. And how he saw fit to deal with it was put Saguntum to siege for eight months, massacre the adult population, loot the city, and that basically started the Second Punic War. So they took over Saguntum and started to get his army prepared. So uh, Hannibal collected up a bunch of people, 90,000 soldiers is what he collected up. And he left sometime in late spring. So like he was getting his army prepared to move and he knew he had to time it just perfectly so that he could cross the Alps uh, without getting snowed in, right? Without the passes getting full of snow because the Alps are huge and there's a lot of snow. It's cold. Uh, so he knew, he had to move at a certain time. So he, he got on the ground in late spring, but he also couldn't leave too early uh, because his army would be totally dependent on forage and what they could get from the local countryside because they're not going to, they basically left with no supply train. Uh, so they have to leave late enough that there's food available, but early enough that they can get through the Alps without a problem. Uh, so they left like sometime like in like May or June. Um, so listen to this. A marching soldier burns four to 5,000 calories a day, which is about two to three pounds of food. This army was 90,000 people strong. It would take over 120 tons of food to feed them daily, daily. And that's not including any of the forage for the cavalry or the pack animals. That is so much food. That's unbelievable. A day. That's logistics. A day. Logistics. A day. That's logistics. So like back in the, these ancient times, like we kind of um, have, I think we've alluded to it in other battles, but like people would live off the land. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like they would raid villages. They yeah. would say like, Hey, eat whatever you can find. Yeah. Is that like how Hannibal is conducting himself? Or yeah. Did they he... basically like loot along the way and like, or like pay like, you know, these little villages, like give us all the food in your granaries and we'll give you some money or we'll just take it. Uh, or, you know, we'll burn or we'll take all this farm field. That's what basically what they did all the way to Italy and in Italy. Um, so the army marched up the coast of Spain across the Pyrenees, which is the mountain range that separates Spain from Southern France um, moved into southern France, or today southern France, it was Gaul back then, and they made it to the bank of the Rhone by September. Over the course of the march, they actually had shed like 32,000 men. So by the time that the Punic army got to the Rhone, they were at 50,000. And I think a lot of this was like people were a little upset, like, oh, we actually don't want to be doing this marching. And Hannibal's like, I can't feed all of you. So I just, we just need to cut you out. So they get to the Rhone, about 50,000 strong. Today, the Rhone, very nice river, very peaceful. Uh, there's a lot of canals and dams that are over it. And so there's no, like, it's not rat, like it's not rapids or anything. It's very calm. Back then though, it was an extremely wild river. Apparently the, the current was very heavy. And I think, you know, every time we talk about a water crossing, I hear it all the time when, you know, in army stuff is like crossing a river is the most dangerous thing an army can do. Like of anything, any maneuver, any movement, anything that an army can do, Crossing river is one of the most dangerous things you can do, especially when you got 37 war elephants. <laughs> so, um, okay. So they're at, on the banks of the throne. The other thing that's going to be challenging is that there is a group of adversarial Celts here called the Volcay. So they're going to be challenged by them. Hannibal sent a large force of his cavalry up the river about 20 miles to modern-day Avignon, and they came back down to camp behind the Celtic camp. Once the main body began crossing the river, the Celts moved to block and then uh, Hannibal sent up smoke signals and the Punic cavalry attacked the Celts from the back. Uh, they attacked to secure the bridgehead and the Celts went fleeing. 
Um, the other crazy thing is they then had to like create a bunch of rafts to get these elephants across. These, these rafts were like 40 logs strong and they barely held these elephants. Uh, there's a Smithsonian documentary that shows like the scientists like building one of these rafts and it barely survives in the very calm Rhone. <laughs> they lost a couple elephants um, in the water. Those elephants would swim using their trunks as snorkels to get across. Um, but this crossing was crazy. Uh, they finally get all the way across and then they're spotted the next day by Roman cavalry. The bag was up. The Romans knew that Hannibal was attacking and they're pretty surprised because they're like, oh crap, this dude's actually like doing the overland route, which nobody thought could actually be done with, a, with an army. Um, instead of entrenching and sitting on the defense, Hannibal knew he had to move and the only way to move was to cross the Alps. All right. Also at the same time, the Romans are preparing for war. Uh, they had armies and fleets that were being prepared to invade Spain and the Carthaginian homeland under the consuls Publius Cornelius Scipio, uh, Scipio Africanus's father, by the way, and Tiberius Sempronius Longus. Longus was sent onto Sicily as the deployment area for Africa. Scipio would be pulled back to deal with a rebellion in Cisalpine Gaul, so he's already dealing with Gauls in northern Italy. Uh, Scipio had stopped his fleet in Massilia, which is modern-day Marseille, uh, which is just south, like, basically on the River Rhone. And he learned Hannibal was right there. Uh, he had missed him by days, uh, but he made the choice to split his force. He sent most of his army to Spain under the command of his brother and former consul, Cineas. And then Scipio would take two legions and park them on the Italian side of the Alps, waiting to catch Hannibal if he survived the crossing. All which right. he did. He did. And we're going to talk about right now. The Alps. Like, everyone knows Hannibal for crossing the Alps. The Italian Alps, these huge, towering snow-capped mountains, and we're talking about like late September, early October when this happened. Hannibal would enter the Alps with about 40,000 men. He lost another 10,000 to go and like do some like security stuff and like build up a fort in southern France. So he had 40,000 men. The crossing took two weeks. The army dealt with two Gallic ambushes. Uh, he actually, so this is where he used the elephant successfully. Uh, the Gauls had tried to like pin Hannibal into a pass and Hannibal was like getting shot at from the, from above with like boulders and arrows and spears. And so he charged the elephants at these Gauls and scared them away and used the elephant successfully to get his army through the Alps. Uh, he had a steep descent on the backside of the Alps, dealt with a landslide, a huge boulder that they had to use sour wine to blow up. Uh, and then Hannibal would enter the Lombard plain near Turin at 65% strength or 26,000 men. Turin is the modern day city. There is there used to be a Celtic tribe there called the Turini, I think, uh, who who had a little village there. Yeah, so this rock was crazy. Uh, Sam, you give me some big eyes when I said that. So they had this huge rock. The elephants couldn't get around it, and so they basically like took this sour wine and they poured it into the cracks, and then they used that to like explode the rock out. Like they had some engineers that were like using explode? this. Explode like, like they like. It was like a they used the wine as a gunpowder, or did the wine just expand and it expanded? The, rock? the wine That's expanded true. and broke, and then they would use like wedges to break the rock. Exploding yeah. sounds better for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just imagine like Saruman blowing up the wall Ooh. at Helm's Deep, and everyone's no. just like, "What is this?" No, Hannibal. <laughs> Hannibal had a very hodgepodge army. No Urukai. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Hannibal sacked the Turini as an example to the Gauls who live there. Nearby Gauls took the message and pledged to Hannibal's army replenishing, you know, what he had lost crossing the Alps. Um, okay, so Carthaginian Roman cavalry from Scipio's legion would meet. Uh, so this is the first kind of uh, time that the two armies would come together. 
Carthage would conduct a double envelopment with their heavy horse in the center and the light, fast Numidian horse on the wings. Uh, the Roman cavalry tried to disembark off their horses or dismount, I guess, disembark, dismount off their horses. Uh, that didn't go very well. Uh, so Hannibal kind of learned from this and would use this double envelopment a lot, uh, very successfully. So Scipio, Gennaro was not the first instance of a double no, envelopment. No, there was actually, yeah, there was multiple. Oh, that, this is like his go-to tactic. This is his go-to move. He had, oh, like well, It was like perfected by the time he got to well. Kenai. <laughs> uh, this is one thing about Hannibal. Hannibal learns. He learns from losses. He learns from defeats. Uh, he learns from, losses and defeats are the same. He learns from victories. Uh, <laughs> so he learns from his enemies. So he uh, he's a very quick learner on the battlefield. Uh, Scipio would withdraw and not fight Hannibal again. He had been so beat there just by this horse battle because uh, he had very few soldiers. All right. Hannibal and the other Roman consul Sempronius would fight in earnest soon after. Uh, Sempronius would... Oh, yeah, we are, we're starting to talk about the two main battles here. So we have the Battle yeah. of Trebia and the Battle of Lake Tresemene. Um, I don't know if you have any notes on that before we get started. Otherwise, yep. I could just jump into it. Yeah, no. So I, I don't have anything before that. Let's go into the battle. The first All one, right. the Battle of Trebina, or okay. Trebia. So Hannibal and this uh, other Roman consul, Sempronius, would fight now here at this river of Trebia. Um, so on the river, uh, Hannibal, I think, was on the north side of the river. And there was like this beautiful open plain on the north side of the river. And Hannibal knew the Romans wanted to fight there, right? They had this like huge, this huge army that likes to fight on this wide open, even ground. And so Hannibal knew this was going to be the place to fight. Hannibal also did some reconnaissance of the area and saw that there was a creek that was coming off the, the end, coming into uh, the river Trebia that was very overgrown with like a little cut in. And he was able to hide a bunch of his soldiers in this little cut. Um, let's see. Yeah. So the night before Hannibal hit 2000 Numidians in this overgrown stream bed to the South of the battlefield. And he ordered them to attack the Roman rear. So the Romans, like, so we're talking about like middle of October, maybe early November, the, the Romans wake up in the morning, don't eat breakfast, don't really prepare for battle. And they just like march across this cold ass river. Uh, and so they get across the river and they get set up in their battle lines while they're doing that. Hannibal tells his soldiers, eat your breakfast, oil yourselves up, prepare yourselves for battle. So the Carthaginians kind of get to battle. They're a little more limber, uh, than their, their opponents who were just in this frigid water. And the fight would start. The Romans attacked. They had good success in the center. They had, you know, the, the heavy legionaries in the center have good success. And they actually, like, kind of march off the battlefield because of what happens next. Um, their flanks would fail. The Roman flanks fail. And then they were overrun by the Numidian ambushes from the stream bed. So they get kind of pinned here. The Roman infantry marches away from the battlefield. They're just like, we're done with this. They leave. And uh, the... Carthaginians win here uh, have what, a good success yeah what's super interesting to me about this is like we and we talked about this before that the beating heart of the Roman army and tactics is their heavy infantry in the center but it without their flanks and they've been defeated on their flanks several times already by Hannibal by the time can I starts is they they still have their cavalry on the flanks and they just neglect to train better to yeah you know, uh, take any lessons learned and apply them. Like they, like it, it's where they're the most vulnerable, but they still is, I don't know if it's their pride or what, but like it's that heavy infantryman at the center that they're focused on. Yeah, I think it's uh, because it is, like, that's like the Roman mindset, right? Like we're right. very direct and like, we just want to fight head on because they know they can win that way. Right. 
But so. I mean, and, and we'll see. We'll see this game. We talked about it. The Romans, like you said, are very head on. But Hannibal, fully understanding Roman tactics, decides to conduct an ambush. Yeah, and it works super well. Super and well. it's I don't know. I just I don't understand why the Romans aren't learning. Bjorn, do you have any other notes on Trebia? Nope. Just understand that the Numidians that are hidden, those dudes are cavalry units, so uh, they're they're flexing their major advantage during this entire campaign, which is their cavalry forces that are capable of getting around the Roman flanks and really causing havoc. So uh, mm-hmm. fresh Carthaginian cavalry are going to out, uh, they're going to route the outnumbered Roman cavalry. And as soon as that's done, uh, the end is near for the Romans. Yeah. So that this needs to be a focus of theirs and it's not, yeah. the Romans are going to go through this entire campaign recognizing or without recognizing that they were far outnumbered and disadvantaged when it comes to cavalry and their flanks were terribly exposed because it's going to happen in the next battle. Yep. So this would bring on the winter. So the Punic army begins to settle into Northern Italy for the winter. Uh, this is the time when they like refit, refuel themselves, restrengthen themselves after that crossing of the Alps and the long March. They bring in like Hannibal does a lot of pol- politicking and he brings in a lot of Celts, builds up his army <clears throat> Um, and gets ready for his spring offensive, uh, which he will do here in a moment. Before that, though, oh, go ahead, Bjorn. Well, I was just going to say, we need to remember that this is northern Italy. So when we're talking about the winter in northern Italy, it's far different than the winter that we have. Uh, but at the same time, they're it's still far different out. than the winter of North Africa. Right. Well, yeah, but Absolutely. they're camped. They're stagnant in their areas. And just yeah. think of the devastation of the land as they're every like your entire goal for the entire winter is to get through the winter, yeah. which means that you're sending out parties to different villages, different settlements. Yeah. You're raiding people's uh, cellars. You're, yeah. you're taking whatever you can take to sustain your army throughout the winter. And the Celts and the Gauls here are for, like they like Hannibal, right? Because he's like coming to fight the Romans. But to have this huge Punic army in your backyard for months is a little terrifying. It's like, okay, guys, we'll, we'll take care of you for the winter, but you, you best be on your way here to springtime and go deal with these Romans, right? So, like, and everyone's get a little uppity here in the wintertime. Um, so, on the Roman side, during the winter, uh, the Romans elect new consuls, Flaminius and Geminus, uh, who both had moved north to Arminium, which is on the east side on the Adriatic coast, uh, pretty far up the boot. Uh, Flaminius marched then to Eretium to block Hannibal from crossing the mountain passes in the center part of Italy. Uh, He missed Hannibal and had to chase him. So Hannibal moves his army across the Apennines, which kind of separates Italy longitudinally, like north and south. Uh, So uh, there's this mountain range in the middle of Italy. So he crosses over that and he moves into the Erturia region, which is that area that is north, like this like state area that's north of Rome. But it's, we're getting pretty close to the capital city here. So the Punic army is now in the move at springtime. And so first, uh, Hannibal like wants to like put his new army that he's formed over the wintertime basically through another like testing phase. So, like he tested his army in the Alps, like, you know, so the Libyans and the Numidians made it through that great. And they got like really battle hardened and like, like just full of frost and you know, it's kind of like the thing with like, you know, American football and like we're playing the playoffs and, you know, the offensive linemen don't have any long sleeves on because they're tough men. So it's basically like what happened to the Alps with the Carthaginian <laughs> army. But now like they're moving through this, like there's a swamp that's just on the foothills of the west side of the Apennines. And Hannibal kind of uses this rough terrain to test his new army and get these galls in shape for the upcoming uh, upcoming campaign. Uh, 
he's as he's marching though, he comes across this lake, uh, Lake Tresemene, and he sees the perfect opportunity. So he's on this road. Uh, this road runs along the lake. So there's the lake. There's like this narrow, flat area where the where the road is, and then right next to that is a high hill. So it's lake, narrow, flat passage, plain area, and then a high hill. Um, so Hannibal had convinced Flaminius, Council Flaminius' scouts that he had moved into this path and that was camped at the far end of this thing, right? So the scouts go back and report to Flaminius. The Punic army has entered this pass. They're camped in the far end. So Flaminius like starts to prepare his legions. Hey, in the morning, we're going to line up in the maniple system. Hastati, Princeps, Triari are in line moving into this passage. Overnight, Hannibal leaves his cavalry in this camp. He then moves the rest of his army on the backside of these hills and marches back towards the Romans, ascends to the top of the hill, camps on the reverse slope so no one can see him, doesn't put out campfires, very stealthy. He's sitting on on this uh, the reverse slope overnight. The next morning, uh, so it's on, um, oh, I didn't get the date, uh, but so we're talking like 217 BC, I think it was June maybe, June 21, 217 BC, I think, um, the morning comes and it's foggy as heck. Uh, this fog comes rolling down the hill, so you can't see the top of the hill. Flaminius marches his army into this canalized terrain and makes contact with the blocking cavalry force. Once contact happens, the Punic army descends upon the Romans, uh, coming out of these low-lying clouds, ambushing Flaminius's legions. And the battle would happen like that. Flaminius and 15,000 Romans die, and another 15,000 are taken prisoner. The whole counselor army obliterated. Two legions gone. In Man. three hours. In three hours. Uh, and then a little while later, the a Roman cavalry force of 4,000 would be cut in half by the Punic cavalry. Uh, the Romans are in dire. Oh, Bjorn, before I say the next part, do you have any other, either of you have any other points here on Tresemene? No, I, like, I had brilliant tactics here. Like just br- brilliant insane. tactics and brilliant use of terrain to his advantage. Yes. Yeah, I have that. Uh, you know, you, you said that there were 15,000 killed, 15,000 uh, captured. Um, I had that a couple of them got away initially. About 6,000 of them yeah. got away. Uh, but they're going to be surrounded by pursuing Carthaginians yeah. uh, later on in the day and surrendered. So this is complete and total victory for the Carthaginians, which is also interesting that, I mean, this was a pretty awesome victory in itself. You know, yeah. all... 25, 30,000 Romans are completely destroyed. And this isn't the main event, the famous battle that he's known for. Like this is, this is complete. This This one is insane though. This like, uh, it's, this one's like, oh, so like these heavy heavy legionaries are like uh, terrified of this Carthaginian army. They go into the lake and there's like stories uh, in the, in this book, the ghost of Kenai that I'm reading, um, I think by Robert O'Connell. It's a good book. And the Roman legionaries like, basically went to the lake up to their necks and they're, but they're in their full kit. So they're like, you know, 50 pounds of kit in the lake and the cavalry come in and kill them. Uh, and like that's, they just die in the lake. It's insane. Unbelievable. Well, Unbelievable. The thing is, is that this, these two major defeats for the Romans <laughs> leads this new guy uh, to create this idea that I don't even want to, I don't even want to engage the Carthaginians. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Battle. So, because of how bad Lake Tresemene was, they, I mean, they lost a council. The council died. And so the Romans 
elected dictator to take control of the situation, which is, I think, the only the second time so far in history that this has happened. His name, Quintus Fabius Maximus. So to that point, like you said, this is only the second time in history. Rome is in full freakout mode right now. They just the first time was in the first peanut war, by the way. <laughs> yeah, like they. They are in full freakout mode. They're electing this dictator. They just lost two huge battles. They just yep. lost a consul. They just lost two legions in three hours. And so they are they are panicking. Yeah. But at the same time, this guy is going to come up with this idea of um, let's just cut off his supply lines, avoid any pitch battles. Yep. Uh, Which is wild gonna... because this lake is 80 miles from Rome. They are 80 miles from They're Rome. So right close. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Hannibal doesn't go to Rome, though, because Hannibal knows like he's got a very weak right. army right now, and he cannot siege Rome. Rome is very but, well fortified. Right, but for Fabian to employ this strategy while this, like, yes, Rome is super fortified, but they are still knocking on the door, yeah. right? Like, they, yeah. they are close. They are in our backyard. This is like, we're in Minnesota right now. This is like if Canada invaded and they were in, you know, uh, St. Cloud. Yeah, St. Cloud or something like, something like yeah. that, whatever. Oh, like, yeah. Our global audience knows St. Claude, Minnesota. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, it's it's super close. So, yes, like, you know that you're protected for the time being, but they're right there. Like, this is cause for concern. Yeah. But so, Bjorn, you're right. Like, this is Fabian's plan, right? Like, he's going to burn all the forage, right? So, we're going to burn the farms down, and then he is going to just shadow Hannibal, not get decisively engaged, and he's going to camp on the high grounds. Uh, And this makes the Romans so mad. Now, you guys... You're giving it away. The guy's name is Quintus Fabius Maximus Veracasus, and you keep referring to him as Fabian because he's the dude who created the Fabian strategy or Fabian tactics, oh, which is okay. exactly Fabian is an good. adjective. Okay. Yeah. All right. We gave it away. Sorry, everyone. You gave it away. Um, you ruined it. But yeah, so the Roman populace is actually not happy with this guy uh, because two things. Well, one thing we've talked about so far, Romans are very offensive minded, right? Like the, the B in the defense does not feel good for the Romans. So they hate that. They also are very into agriculture. Like they, like their far, their whole society is based on, we are a, a military society and we An grow a lot society. of crops. Oh yeah. Every Senator, every Senator had a massive farm massive somewhere farm. in Rome. Like yeah. that, that's what you were. You were nobody if you weren't a farmer, which I kind of like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> do you think they got good subsidies oh uh, hey we don't get that many subsidies <laughs> <laughs> okay so like we said uh instead of attempting to siege the well-fortified rome hannibal actually moves back across the Apennines to the east side of italy to refresh his army and start uh plying away these roman allies along the adriatic right so there's a lot of like greek and other italian uh societies that are on the east side of Rome that had been conquered. And so Hannibal is going to try and get them into his army. So, yeah. So Um, Hannibal's whole strategy here is I don't need to defeat Rome on the battlefield. I just need to take their allies away and bring them over to my side. And and then Rome is going to have no one left. So this is the one mistake I think Hannibal makes strategically in the Second Punic War. He thinks Rome is like Carthage, where, you know, Carthage doesn't bring their conquered people into the citizenship. Whereas Rome does. Right. And so so Hannibal thinks it's like, oh, the Gauls didn't like Rome, but all, like all the people in settled Italy, they kind of like the Romans now. Like they're Roman, like they're Roman citizens and they've been in the Roman armies. And so it's a lot harder for him. Like this is what's going to kill him in the Second Punic War over the, like, the 15 well, years. I, well, I agree with you. I do. Uh, it is worth noting that after the Battle of Cannae, there are many Southern Italian city states that defect and go to the Carthaginian there side. There are. But yeah, you're right. Um, okay. I have another story here. So. 
Maximus had trapped or, yeah, what Fabius, right? Fabius Maximus had trapped Hannibal in a valley and Maximus had set up a blocking position in the pass of the Volturnus River Valley. And Maximus is like, I'm just going to let Hannibal do his thing in this valley because he can't get out because it's surrounded by high ground. So he can't get out. But so Hannibal plunders this valley, but he needs a way out. So at night, uh, the Punic uh, Service Corps ties wood bundles to the horns of about 2,000 ox. The ox were driven up the valley, like the ridges of the valley, and they lit the horns on fire. So like it's middle of the night and like they just see like a bunch of like what you know, like torch looking it's things. It's an army. It's, it's an army. It like, tortured. Yeah. It looks like 4,000 men with torches going up the sides of those ridges away from like where this blocking position was. So the Romans thinking that these ox were the Carthaginian army followed the oxen, leaving the road outside of this valley wide open. The entire Punic army escaped. And well, well, and what Maximus thought oxen? it was a trick. And so he's like, I'm not going to bring my whole legion down there to fight them because I thought it was a trap. And Hannibal gets away. Genius. But what happened to the oxen? They started forest fires. It was okay. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, so the next thing. So Hannibal comes upon the family farm of Maximus. So like we found the oh, dictator's God. farm. Oh, and no. Hannibal destroys everything except the farm. And this totally embarrassed Maximus. He's recalled back to Rome to report on what happened. So Maxim- Maximus gave uh, word to his master of horse, uh, a man named Minicus, uh, to not engage the enemy. So Minicus, you are going to take over this army while I go back to Rome to deal with the politics. Do not attack Hannibal. Uh, Minicus doesn't listen. Uh, so near a place called Geranium in the fall of 217, Hannibal massacres a village and begins uh, setting up his winter camp using all the houses in this village as his greeneries. And then from there, Hannibal sends out his foraging parties like Bjorn, you had mentioned up in Northern Italy. He does that here in, in Geranium. Minicus begins assaulting these foraging parties and he even assaults Hannibal's forward camp, uh, inflicting casualties and earning a solid reputation in Rome for actually doing something here. Uh, so he would actually then be elevated to co-dictator with Maximus. This the one guy who would the one guy who would do something and the yeah. other guy who wouldn't do anything. Uh, so over winter, the dictatorship would end and two new councils would be elected to take back over uh, the two consular armies that are in the field. That's all I got for pre-battle maneuvers. That is like kind of where things kind of settle up here. Um, Bjorn, Sam, any other comments there on Hannibal's movements throughout central Italy? No, this is this is the uh, the father of the Fabian tactic here. Uh, getting himself fired because he wasn't doing anything. And Hannibal finds himself in a position where uh, he's going to have another army ahead of him. And this is kind of the the name of the game. You defeat one and another one forms in front of you. But what the Romans are going to do the next time is they're going to say, forget about this. Let's raise a big one. And Sam had already mm-hmm. kind of alluded to uh, the, the size of this bad boy. They're going to actually double the size of these Roman armies as they're moving forward uh, into the next battle. Okay, you guys, that's where we're going to end off here. Uh, we have the Punic and the Roman armies settling in for winter, going into the spring next of 216. Uh, so they're going into the winter of two, 217, 216. Um, any final thoughts here on on Hannibal's march to Rome? Hannibal is, uh, I, I think it, it can't be understated how much of a genius Hannibal is when it comes to utilizing his forces available, understanding his opponent um, and utilizing the train to his advantage. He's a 
fantastic intelligence officer. He's a fantastic maneuver officer uh, for his day. Super creative. Um, but I think from a grand strategic level, I, I do think I, I'll be his devil's advocate, but I do think that um, he'll fall short in, in, the, in the grand scheme of history. So super excited to talk about that on the next episode. So I look at it as, uh, you know, in the military today, we've, we've each got our own different branch that we focus on and, and we're really good and we're experts at our, at our job. Uh, in order to be a, a general in charge of an army in antiquity, you had to be everything. Mm-hmm. So Sam's saying, you know, a maneuver general, great. Uh, he's using tactics excellently. He's an intelligence officer, excellent. But the logistics behind feeding, yeah. the logistics behind feeding and, and fielding an army of fifty thousand men for fifteen years, you know, yeah. getting getting a couple guys here, losing a couple guys there, but fifty thousand men for fifteen years, sustaining those dudes in Italy yeah. for that long. The logistics behind that is it would be an absolute nightmare. And then talk uh, about him being a politician now too, right? Because he's got to bring in allies into the fold, right? He's got to convince the Gauls and these Celts to join yeah. his army. And that's, a, this that's guy, politics. This guy is everything. He's yeah. everything. He's the quartermaster. He's the logistician. He's the maneuver officer. He's the intelligence officer. And he's the public affairs officer. The guy, in order and to apparently be- Apparently it was pretty cool. funny too. <laughs> there you kidding. go. Yeah. <laughs> well, he told a good joke after he lost, but- I was like, this guy's got everything. He, and, he was not alone. Like we, we didn't really talk about this, but he right. had like a, like a small group of comrades, right? He, like we mentioned earlier, like his two brothers, he had like a nephew with him, a couple of like childhood friends. Like he had a close group of confidants, but um, yeah, you're right. Like he just like, he was the man here. This was, this was his baby and it was 50,000 so men. When we put him in the conversation with Alexander the great and Pyrrhus and all these other generals of antiquity, you know, up until his time, I don't think his list of putting him third or maybe even higher is all that outlandish. I don't know. I think that the one thing that he uh, that he lacks is, uh, you know, his own general said it himself. He says, Hannibal, you know how to win battles. You don't know how to win wars. Mm. And so if there was a little bit more foreign policy or something that he had a better grasp of or just the politics of the time. He needed more men from Carthage and Carthage yeah. was not capable because remember, they've got invasions. Well, they've got invasions. I cannot in wait to have this conversation with you on the next episode because I feel like once we complete the story, then we can have this conversation yeah. about, you know, like, did did he fall short? Like, because his strategy, like, it's not that unsound, like, especially if you're trying to win hearts and minds. I'm super excited to have the guy. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I'm super excited to have this conversation. I, I will say this point, like very few communications back to Carthage by the time that he goes to winter uh, in the 217 to 16 year, like maybe a handful of times he's, he mailed anything back to, to Carthage uh, to let them know what was actually happening. And remember, he was, he was a man by himself up there. The Carthaginian government system was smaller than like the Roman Senate. And so when you become somebody important, you become someone really important. And had Hannibal been given all of the support that he needed in order to be successful in Rome, uh, the people in Carthage, the politicians there, were afraid they were going to lose some of their some of their pol- power. So politics, you know, everything in life is politics, and this is no different. All right, I think we'll close it out there. Bjorn. Thank you guys for having me back again. I'm yeah, excited man. to finish the story out with I'm you guys. I'm glad you're both here. Yeah. This is a really good conversation. A lot of fun. Sam, thanks for picking this one. Um, and yeah, everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Monday Morning General Podcast. We like talking about military history, and we're glad you're listening in. Um, one thing that you could do for us 
If you could go to Apple or Spotify and just leave us a review, let us know how we're doing, anything you'd like to see us do in the future. We'd love to see uh, see your comments and your reviews. Um, other than that, we're going to close this thing out. Uh, next episode, we're going to dig into the terrain as much as we can. We don't really know where the battle actually took place, um, but we'll try to talk about some of the terrain in the vicinity of where we think Kanai was. Uh, we'll talk about the two, what the two armies look like, and then we'll talk about what actually happened on the on the day of the Battle of Kanai. Uh, I'm looking forward to that conversation, boys. We are going to catch you next time. MMG out.